this morning. As is our custom, we'll just again revisit the scriptures to remind us of what the word of the Lord is, and then we'll pray and ask for his help, and then we'll, we'll get to work. So if you would, I want to actually pick it up in verse 11. Um, we didn't fully expound upon this passage last week, but this is the train of thought as it flows into our paragraph for this morning. Paul has been rebuking these false teachers, and he's been contrasting these false teachers of the law with the true teaching. And he, had, he makes the statement, the aim of our charge is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And, and he talks about law, the, the law, these teachers of the law who want to be teachers of the law, who don't understand what they're talking about. And he goes on to describe that, and he says, you know, that the law is used for these various purposes uh, to condemn those who are unjust. And he goes on to talk about some of the injustices that are perpetuated. And then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, beginning in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul's statement there is that he has been entrusted with the gospel. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. That's right. The Lord is to be glorified. Would you please just bow with me as we ask God to help us this morning to look at this passage? Uh, Father, we thank you for Paul's testimony. We thank you for his clearly repeating for Timothy and as well for all of our sake this morning just exactly what it was that you did in his life and how it was that you brought him to salvation and what that means for Paul, and what it ought to mean for us. God, we know that in this particular passage here, the Apostle Paul starts off by saying that he had been entrusted with the gospel. And so as we consider the choice of Paul this morning, Lord, I pray that you would be pressing on our hearts this morning, asking the question, will you choose us as well? And what does it mean to be chosen by you? To what end? For what purpose? And what is our task? We pray, God, that you'd open our eyes to see these things this morning. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. In 2012, Walmart's top spokesman was forced to resign over a two-decade-old lie on his resume. For 20 years, he had been claiming that he had a bachelor's degree from the University of Delaware, when in fact he never finished the required coursework to even get a diploma. And for 20 years, on every job he had had, he had been claiming that he had a degree from the University of Delaware. 
David Tovar was beginning to advance from being the chief spokesman of Walmart, and he was being considered to become the CEO, the chief executive officer for Walmart. This is a major billion-dollar company, and, uh, and they decided to call his references. I wonder how he made it to becoming the chief spokesman and director of communications without them calling to check his references. But nonetheless, he's going in for the top job, and they decided they ought to follow up on his resume. And lo and behold, the fib was exposed during the background check. As a result, he was forced to resign his position. And when they interviewed him about it, he said, and I quote, It's been so long... I've been using this resume for so many years now that I forgot that I lied about that. Every position he'd ever had, every job he'd ever been interviewed for, everything he had ever done over the course of his career had been founded on a lie, and that lie was so distant in the past that he had forgotten that his whole career was built off of a lie. Well, he was not hired for the CEO position. Indeed, he was fired from his position as director of communications and chief spokesman for Walmart. There's a background check company called HireRight who makes the statement that they've done a bunch of research and they have found that in 35% of screenings, applicants lie on their resume. That's one in three. One in three are not fully truthful in the things that they claim that they have done on their resume. And it's not just the big shots. Uh, who lie, 88% of employers who use the company's screening services said that they have discovered candidates from entry-level positions all the way up through the corporation who have lied on their applications and resumes. Not as many claim such a huge lie as having a degree that they don't actually have, but there are invariably areas where people fib around their qualifications and what it is that they claim they have done. And indeed, this is an ongoing phenomenon in both Canadian as well as American businesses, indeed in businesses all around the world. I'll give you a couple of examples. Ex-Yahoo CEO Scott Thompson claimed in January of 2012, he was, he was being interviewed again for uh, the CEO position, and uh, he claimed that he had a degree from Stonehill College in Massachusetts in computer science and accounting which is a necessary degree, computer science, if you want to be CEO of a company like Yahoo. And he didn't have that degree. He knew nothing of computer science. This became evident when they began to do a bit of team interviewing with some of the leading computer engineers, and, and uh, they began to ask him questions about some of his programming experience, which he had, was completely illiterate in any language that they mentioned. My all-time favorite, Marilee Jones. Marilee Jones was the dean of admissions from 1997 to 2007 at the ultra-prestigious Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. I'm sure you've heard of it. And for 28 years, she had perpetuated the lie that she had three degrees. In reality, she did not have any degrees. How does one become the professor of a prestigious institution of higher learning such as MIT without having any degrees. And she served as the president of MIT. She had served in that role for several years before it was discovered. Several years. What this tells me is that very often we don't actually check references when we hire people. 
and that we should always check references when we hire people because people know that we don't check references when we hire them and they are able to get away with it, or at least that's what they think. All of this leads us to our discussion today. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and he's talking about false teachers. And he's been blasting the false teachers because they don't understand what it is that they're talking about. In other words, they claim learning for which there is no credential. They claim understanding for which there is no certification. They claim a knowledge of the Word of God which their actual experiences and life endeavors do not substantiate. And the Apostle Paul illustrates this by saying essentially that they are using the law of God unlawfully. They are using the things that they are talking about in a manner which is completely inconsistent with their purposes. They show themselves to be intellectually bankrupt when it comes to the scriptures. So this begs the question, of course, if they are wrong in how they are handling the word of God, if they are teaching it falsely, well, hey now, Paul, let's ask you this pointed question. What makes you qualified? What are your credentials? Where is your certification? The Apostle Paul goes, he's saying essentially they're doing it all wrong. They're teaching things that are inconsistent with the true doctrine and with the gospel with which, look at this, verse, uh, verse 11, with which I have been entrusted. Why have you been entrusted? What makes you competent and qualified to hold the gospel, whereas these false teachers are not qualified and are not competent to hold the gospel? And this is where he is going to begin to answer the question, which is certainly lingering in the minds of his readers, undoubtedly lingering in Timothy's mind, not because Timothy doubts the Apostle Paul's credentials, but he must be wondering, if I am called by Paul, as he says here in this first chapter, to charge certain persons to stop their teaching, in other words, to kick them out of their teaching job, to fire them from their office of teaching that they've been having for these past several years, what credentials do I stand on? What gives me the authority? Well, Paul wrote me a letter and told me to do it, okay, but somebody told me to fire you, that's why I'm firing you, that just doesn't quite hold up. If you've ever been in a management position, if you've ever worked at a company and there's someone who's clearly not passing muster and you have to let them go, you and I both know that you can't just say, ah, I just feel like it, you're just not doing a good job. You've got to document it, there has to be proof, there has to be some grounds of authority, there has to be some basis upon which you can make that decision. So Paul writes him a letter, here is the grounds, here is the basis. He begins in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. So the difference, number one, between the Apostle Paul and these false teachers is that unlike the false teachers, the Apostle Paul is faithful. He goes on, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the, notice this, faith of our Lord, faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And again in verse 15, this saying is, notice this, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. 
Now, as I've worked my way through that passage, I've been drawing your attention to several very key, very crucial words. I pointed out to you this word entrusted, tail end of verse 11, verse 12, faithful, verse 13. He says he acted in unbelief. In verse 14, he said Christ's grace overflowed for him with the faith that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy. And then down in verse 16, uh, as an example to those who were to believe. Now those words entrusted, faithful, unbelief, faith, trustworthy, believe, they all within the Greek language have the same stem, the same root word. They're translated in various ways here within our passage as being either trustworthy or being an unbeliever or acting in faith. And we use different English words to draw out the meaning. But you need to understand in the Greek, it's all the same word. Paul is hammering this idea of faith over and over and over and over again. And the idea that he's getting at is namely that the reason he has been chosen to be entrusted with the gospel is because he is going to be faithful. That's the idea. Paul is entrusted with the gospel because he is going to be true to the gospel. And this is going to work its way out in our passage this morning in a couple of different ways. Now, it's my job as the pastor to sort of give you some framework around which you can uh, understand what we're doing here. It's kind of like when you have a plate of food, you know, you could just slop it all on there in one giant mess, but... Whenever you go to restaurants or whenever you attend church, for that matter, you like for the portions to be nicely and neatly separated out. Over here is where your meat goes. Over here is where your potatoes go and so forth and so on. So I'm going to give you some headings to, un- to help you unpack this idea and to wrap your mind around this idea of faithfulness. Number one, we're going to see that God chooses his own leaders on the basis of their faithfulness to him. This is from verse 12. Verses 13 to 14, we're going to see that a faithful teacher is able to distinguish between their former life of faithlessness or unbelief and their new life of faithfulness or belief. We're also going to see that a faithful teacher exemplifies daily trust in Jesus. This idea of believing is not a one-time academic event. It is not a one-time intellectual exchange where you understand that 2,000 years ago there was a man who died on a cross for your sins. It is to be a daily walk of faith. And last, but most importantly, faithful teachers cannot stop rejoicing in, in, in him in whom they have trusted. So let's begin. Verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, the first thing that Paul says there is that the reason he's been entrusted with the gospel is because God judged the apostle Paul to be a faithful man who would take what God had given him and would obey it and honor it and bestow it upon people correctly. That's why God chose Paul. But what practical difference has this made in Paul's life? And this is an important question for us. We're going to be here in just about an hour and a half time sitting in judgment upon three men who are pursuing pastoral ministry. As they pursue this office, we understand there is a life of education that they're going to be attaining. They're going to be learning the word, but they're going to be committing themselves to an ongoing life of learning the word. We know that they're going to be pursuing in-depth knowledge of original languages. We know they're going to be looking at things like systematic theology. We know they're going to be going from Genesis to Revelation and gaining a mastery of the scriptures. 
We know that. And we also know that all of these men, as we determined at our board meeting, our deacons meeting several months ago, all of these men claim a knowledge of the gospel. They claim to understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to forgive them of their sins. Good enough? So far, so good. But a lot of people can say that. A lot of people can claim that knowledge. And yet, we would suspect that there might be something still deficient in their walk with Jesus. What change, what difference should we be looking for? As we consider these three men this afternoon, and I feel like I'm giving them a little cheat sheet now as we're sitting here talking this morning, but that's okay. I'm not going to ask them to leave the room, or maybe I should. No, no, you guys can stay. This morning, this, this afternoon, as we consider these three men, what practical change of heart should that have produced in them? Well, Paul tells you. Right off the bat, verse 12, I thank him who judged me faithful. There should not just be an intellectual mastery of this knowledge. There should be a gratitude, a profound sense of appreciation, a joy of thankfulness because of the choice that God made to choose these men for the ministry to which he has called them. Now, not all of us are called to pastoral ministry, but all of us are called to ministry within the church in some form or fashion. So perhaps a question that would be well considered by each and every one of you as we gather here this morning is, when I approach my ministry, when I seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, do I count it a joy and am I grateful for the opportunity? If you don't notice gratitude within your heart, then perhaps you need to reconsider and reevaluate whether or not you fully understand and fully appreciate just exactly what it cost Jesus suffering on the cross for six hours in order to forgive you of your sins. The man that God chooses is a man that is faithful to him, and that faithfulness flows from a heart that is grateful as a result of what God has done. Paul makes no bones about this. He tells you exactly what kind of a person he used to be in verse 13. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. Can you imagine that? An individual who's brutally honest on his resume. If I was a mass killer of Christians applying to become a pastor of a church, can I tell you one thing I'd probably leave off my resume? It's safe to say I would not touch on the serial Christian killing aspect of my former life. I would try to sweep that aside. He uses three adjectives here. He says, number one, he was a blasphemer. Number two, he was a persecutor. And then he says, insolent opponent. Other translations will render this word violent or uh, angry enemy or a violent enemy. Uh, those, all those meanings are the same, whether whatever your translation may say. This is a complicated word, which can mean a couple of different things in different contexts. But we know from Paul's history that that indeed is what he was. Number one, he was a blasphemer. He claimed to be religious. He claimed to worship God. He was indeed a Pharisee. He makes the statement in the scriptures that among his own kind, he stood head and shoulders above them. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. 
He was a man who studied the scriptures, who lived a rigid, disciplined lifestyle, and he was committed to serving God as he wanted God to be, not as God actually was. And so it was that in the early days of Christianity, when droves of people from within Jerusalem were going and listening to the apostles preaching and teaching, that the apostle Paul was there by the name of Saul, his Hebrew name. And as Stephen stood up to preach and preached about the truth of Jesus and the love of God, the apostle Paul was the one who said, okay, boys, here's the deal. Take your coats, take your cloaks, put them here. I'll keep track. I'll watch over your stuff. Here's a rock for you. Here's a rock for you. You know what to do. I'll keep track of your things while you go and murder that person. Now he is calling for the killing of an individual whose only crime is preaching a truth which Paul does not want to hear. Paul makes the statement, I was a blasphemer. There is a true idea of God, and then there are all the other ideas which masquerade as truth. And when we choose our own conception, when we try to form or fashion God as we would have him and not as he actually is, that is blasphemy. And so Stephen stands up to preach the truth of Jesus. That doesn't mesh well with Paul's Pharisaicism. So let's go kill this guy. It started first and foremost with Paul, the Saul as he was originally known, refusing to hear the truth about God. His first crime was not murder, it was blasphemy. Second, he says, I was a persecutor. Boy, was he. Striving to establish his career, striving to build his resume as he was pursuing a career within Pharisees. He was determined to stamp out this idea of God that did not mesh with his own. He was given letters from the chief priests and the elders within Jerusalem. He was given the authority to chase down these followers of the way, as they were known at that time. Eventually, they would become to be known as Christians. But he was given authority to to chase down these Nazarene heretics, these, these believers of the Nazarene sect. He was given the authority to imprison them, to torture them, and yes, indeed, to kill them. He was given broad sweeping powers by the Sanhedrin to stamp out the Christian heresy before it took off. And he did all of this under the guise of worshiping God, though he would be the first to tell you he was worshiping his own blasphemous notions of God. So he was a persecutor of the church. And then last but not least, he makes the statement that he was a violent or insolent opponent of God. He was God's opponent. You say, but wait a minute. He was killing Christians. He wasn't necessarily trying to kill God. That's not the way that God sees it. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9 now. This is the experience of Paul when he realizes the truth, when he is broken of his ignorance and his unbelief. In chapter 9, it says, verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Notice the question. This is Jesus confronting Saul on the road to Damascus, appearing to him in a vision of blindingly bright light. And the question that Jesus is asking Saul, who will eventually become Paul, is not, hey, Saul, why are you killing a bunch of Christians? Or, hey, Saul, why are you killing people that I love and care about? His statement is, Saul, why are you hurting me? Please understand, First Baptist Church, That any who have trusted in Jesus Christ have begun a relationship with Him that is so intimate and so personal that when anything happens to you, Jesus understands it as happening to Him. Any victories you know are victories which are shared with Christ, indeed, empowered and enabled by Him. And any defeats and any persecution or hardship you endure, you need to understand that when He is with you in the victory, He is equally with you in the hardship and the suffering. Saul, why are you persecuting me? His statement was, I was an insolent or violent opponent of God. We know his track record. He was trying to kill Christians. So understand that in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul lays it out. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And I was an opponent of God. Let's leave that off the resume. May I be your pastor? He was not embarrassed about his past job performance. Although I would agree with any of you who would say, I'm a little reluctant to have this guy come and be an apostle in my church. But Paul demonstrates by his life exactly what it means to have faith in Jesus. The story goes on. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter to the city and you will be told what you are to do. He ends up at Ananias, at Ananias' house. And Ananias is told by God to go and to minister to this man. And Ananias is like, yeah, okay. That's funny, Lord. You know, bum, 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 you know, this is a good joke that you're telling here. I'm glad that we can have humor within the Christian faith. And God says, no, 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 no. Verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The statement that God makes is that, you know, this may sound like a bad joke, but it's not. I have prepared and chosen this man for my purposes, to do my will, to do my bidding, specifically to carry my name before the world. Now, it would be really easy for Saul, Paul, to disappear into the wilderness for three years, which he does, and to just sort of try to change his identity, maybe bleach his hair a little bit, you know, try to add 30 pounds, come back and say, oh, I'm a totally different guy. Change his name. He does, in fact, change his name. The only problem is that the example he sets before us is that the changing of his name was actually to facilitate his carrying the truth before the Gentiles, and he makes it very, very clear that he indeed is the Saul of yesteryear who used to kill Christians. So the name change wasn't for the purposes of concealment. He doesn't hide who he is. He doesn't hide what he's done. 
you're beginning to get a sense of the resume of an individual who truly trusts in the Lord. Going back to 1 Timothy, Paul says that a faithful teacher will be faithful to the Lord. That means honoring the Lord. And a faithful teacher will be able to distinguish between their former life, who they used to be, and who they are now. You know, in Southern Baptist circles, we do, uh, this isn't really a thing that happens anymore these days, but we, we generally, I can remember growing up, we generally used to do this thing where we would have revivals. And uh, you hear the word revival, and you're thinking of this probably of something from church history, such as Jonathan Edwards recorded about the Great Awakening, the Great American Revival in the 1700s, and, and you're thinking of a movement of the Spirit. That's not exactly what's happening within Southern Baptist churches, although we would hope that it would. But within Southern Baptist churches, particularly in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and I can even recall as a child, we would do these events called revivals where we would have people come in, uh, guest speaker, eloquent preacher. He had like five sermons that he had down pat that were polished, that were ready to go. And we would bring people, we would go out in the streets and invite our neighbors and anyone who wasn't a Christian. We would invite them to come and join us at church. And we would call it revival. It was, it was sort of like a Billy Graham type of crusade on a small scale. That's really what it was. And we would bring them in. This guy would preach the gospel. And we would hope that these people would get saved. Invariably, at some point during the five-night revival, as it was known within the church, the traveling evangelist or the traveling preacher would give his testimony. And I can remember on more than one occasion, on several occasions, in fact, hearing the testimonies of these people, and they would talk about their life before they knew Christ. And they would really talk it up. Man, I used to go and party. I used to go drinking with my buddies. I used to drink so hard I would wake up plastered in the morning. I didn't remember where I was. And it would be very interesting to me as a young man still trying to sort out what it means to walk with the Lord by faith to hear these men talk about their former life with an attitude of almost joy. They would talk about being drunk and They would make jokes, and we would laugh because we could all relate, except for me. I was like 12 years old. I had no idea what it meant to be drunk, but everybody else was laughing, so I would laugh too. And they would talk about all the violent things that they had been involved in, brawling outside of bars. Sometimes they would talk about women that they had slept with, and they would talk about it with a sense of nostalgia, almost as though they didn't say it, but you almost got the impression that they almost sort of missed it. And then they would say, now I've met Jesus. And immediately they would get very somber and very serious, almost as though they were at a funeral now. Without saying it, they conveyed implicitly this idea that the good life was when you didn't know the Lord, and now that you know the Lord, you've died, and your life is over. That is not the way that the Apostle Paul describes it. He talks about violence on a scale that you and I can only imagine. And he makes sure to characterize it in terms that are intended to be reprehensible. His statement here was, Formerly, I was a blasphemer. I was a person who talked bad and dirty about God. There is no euphemism. You see, today we would employ language like, oh, I used to have some mistaken ideas about God. And I might, in certain circles, convey those ideas inappropriately. 
Okay, so you're a blasphemer. Let's use the word that the scriptures use. He goes on to say, uh, a persecutor. Now, part of me kind of wonders if that isn't just a little bit of a euphemism on Paul's part because he was this Christian serial killer. But then he goes on to say, I was an insolent opponent. This particular Greek word, the reason why it's translated in various different ways in your various, tra- in your various translations Some translations call it an insolent opponent, an angry man. You'll you'll find different ways that this word is rendered. This is a word that was used of low-life criminal scum. Incorrigible anarchists who couldn't see the reason of good society and would just rebel for the sake of rebelling. Paul has various words he could use. If you think that when he makes the statement, I was a persecutor, that perhaps he was euphemizing his horrific behavior By the time he comes to this last term here, it's quite clear. He wants you to understand. He was criminal scum. That's essentially what this word means. I was one of those guys that deserved to be locked up in prison for the ways in which I acted and hurt God. And God made that very clear to him on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting God? He goes on then in the next verse. He says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, if he was in any way sugarcoating his past, that's hard to understand given the words he now uses to describe the way that God has poured out his love on Paul. He makes the statement, the grace of our Lord overflowed. In other words, he he uses this picture of God as being sort of a vessel or a container that is filled up with something, and there's just so much of it and so much of it that it just begins to bubble over and flow over. That's the word picture that Paul uses, and then he brings it into the concrete. What he is specifically saying is that God's grace and mercy overflowed for Paul. Though Paul tried to essentially kill God as a result of his blaspheming and his hatred of those who were God's people, God still loved Paul. And that's the truth for you and me here today. However you are tempted to euphemize your past, to talk in very minor and belittling ways of how horrific you actually once were, despite all of that, God loves you. And it's not just sort of a, yeah, you're okay kind of love. It's an overflowing love. Indeed, God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to take all those things which you talk so little of, to bear those things in himself, and to go to the cross in order to be punished for those things of which you speak so little, to be tortured and ultimately executed for those minor, minor infractions. This is the love of God overflowing for all of us. This is how much he loved Paul. Paul's statement is that the love of God overflowed for him. The grace of our Lord overflowed with faith and love. Verse 15, 
In case he's jumping too quickly to how great God is and how much God loves him, he checks himself now. Just, just, just so you know, this saying is worthy of full acceptance. J- just in case I'm too quickly getting carried away with how great and awesome God is, let me just reiterate and remind you of my assessment of myself. He says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom... I am the foremost. Now that is Paul's assessment of himself. He is able to draw a mature distinction between his former life as an unbeliever and his current life now as a believer. The man that God entrusts with the gospel, the man that God entrusts with the truth of salvation, is a man, number one, who is going to be hoping in Jesus, placing his faith in Jesus. And this faith is of such a radical nature that he does not employ gimmicks. He does not employ schemes in order to mask over his past resume, however horrific that it is. Indeed, it's just quite the opposite. Despite his former life, he trusts that God will make a way and he trusts God for all of his righteousness and all of his vindication. He doesn't have to close in the gaps of his resume. He can say, I am who I am. I am where I am by the grace of God. And he demonstrates that he is still trusting in God in the present. A faithful teacher exemplifies trust in Jesus day by day. I want to talk to you a little bit for a moment about trust. When we talk about faith, all too often we talk about it in terms of just sort of intellectually understanding what it was that Jesus did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. Essentially, in many, many churches here in Kamloops and around the world, the gospel is dumbed down. It is sort of redefined downwards into all that you have to do, essentially, is to know that there was a man who came 2,000 years ago and that he loved you and that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You understand on some level that your sins need to be punished, and you understand on some level that Jesus is willing to take the punishment for your sins himself by dying on the cross. And and essentially, the way that the gospel is proclaimed is that if you just know those basic historical sort of facts, then you're okay. And indeed, we can even expound upon those historical facts and say that he was God and man, fully man, fully God, born of a virgin. We can add all sorts of other details in there fully clarifying what it is that we believe about Jesus. But at the end of the day, a lot of times what faith is portrayed as is nothing more than a history lesson. And I want you to understand that nothing could be further from the truth. In 1988, the Winter Olympics were held right here in Canada, the Calgary Winter Olympics. And I wasn't really into sports I hadn't fully developed my love of American football at this point in my life, but I remember watching the 1988 Olympics on TV as a little boy. And one evening there was a program on TV, and I wonder how many of you might remember this. There was a program on TV in which they took blind people, individuals who'd been born blind from birth or had suffered some sort of an accident and could not see, and they taught them to slalom ski downhill. 
Now, you might be sitting here thinking, I don't know what slalom skiing is. It's that skiing where you go downhill and there are these little, like, flags and and they call them gates and you have to, like, ski between the gates and they're usually set at opposite sides of the course so that you hit one gate and you have to make a hard turn and come back and hit the next gate. There was a program showed one evening during the 1988 Olympics, which has been firmly impressed upon my mind. I don't remember exactly who was involved or what the name of the program was, but they took these blind people and they basically taught them to ski. They put them on these gentle downhill sort of slopes and it just started off first with learning how to keep your balance and how to go downhill. And they had these expert you know, Olympic athletes skiing alongside of these guys. And they were like, okay, you're doing good. And just lean a little bit more forward to gain some speed. Oh, you're going a little fast. Kind of push out your back end of your ski so you can plow a little bit. And, uh, and they began to instruct them in all these things. And then by the time that the winter, they'd been doing this for months in preparation. And by the time that the winter Olympics rolled around, they took these blind skiers and they had them racing down the, the Olympic slalom ski course for the most part, hitting the gates. And the thing that I'll never forget is that right behind them was this Olympic athlete skiing right behind them and calling out, hard left, hard right, slow down, speed up, and guiding them through the course. The skier could not see where he was going or what he was doing. The skier could not even tell you exactly which gates it was that he was supposed to be banking towards. But the skier had complete confidence in the Olympic athlete that was right behind them. When I talk about trusting in Jesus, I am not only talking about what Jesus has done. I am talking about what Jesus is doing, and I am talking about what Jesus will do. And when I talk about these things, immediately your question starts to come, well, what's Jesus going to do? Or what is Jesus doing? And these are questions that fundamentally betray a profound misunderstanding of the gospel. You see, I am a blind beggar just like you. I cannot tell you what my God in heaven is doing with perfect clarity in this moment. I cannot tell you what gate it is that we are slaloming towards. I do not know how long until we get to that gate in which our God in heaven is going to say, bank hard right. I do not know where we are going or how exactly it is we are getting there. What I'm trying to tell you is that faith in Jesus is a profound trust that recognizes what he did for you 2,000 years ago on the cross, forgiving of your sins, and is now in this moment prepared to fully surrender, fully acknowledge you have no idea what's coming. And yet you can know the one who does and trust in him. That's the kind of faith that Paul is demonstrating here. Oh, Paul, I don't know, man. Don't tell people about the whole killing Christians thing. That might not work out so well for you. Oh, Paul, I don't know. I don't know. You're a Pharisee. You're a Jew. And we're trying to take the gospel to Gentiles. And they're a totally different type of people than you. They have totally different customs than what you have. Oh, Paul, I I don't know. I don't know if you're going to be able to lead this church. I don't know if they're going to accept you. And Paul's response to all those things was, look, I am who I am. It's not me they're accepting. It is to be Jesus Christ in heaven. And either they will hear his word through me as nothing more than a vessel, or they won't. But the fundamental question is not me. 
It's whether they will trust him. And the same is true for all of us here today. The man that God entrusts with the gospel is the man who is utterly and totally faithful to God. His faith is first in Jesus. In any claim to any form of vaulted credentialing or high certification or superior learning, any claim to PhDs, any claim to extended periods of education in Scripture as sufficient for preaching the gospel, those are all utterly false and nothing more than the hubris of man. What we're looking for as we consider these three men this afternoon, giving you guys a little cheat sheet, are they grateful for what God has done in their life and do they have an unrelenting commitment to trusting him above all else? And you'll see this worked out in a number of ways, but Paul shows us exactly what happens in his life when he considers who he was, what he was, and where he's come from. In verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He can't stop talking about how glorious Jesus is. You'll find that the man that God entrusts with the gospel is the man that doesn't talk much about himself, but talks all day long about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. As we close this morning, we're going to be here in just a little while talking about some very significant decisions for the life of our church. You're going to hear about the different properties all around us and what all is going on real estate-wise. And you're going to hear about what's happening in the public education system. You're going to be hearing about all manner of different details and all of these sorts of things. But at the end of the day, the question which must always be before us, do we love Jesus so much that we cannot stop talking about him? And will we take steps to make sure that he is always exalted, always exalted this day and until he comes back. My hope and my prayer is that you would be willing to walk a life of faith that doesn't have all the answers, that can't see every gate, every which turn and obstacle we may encounter or have to go over or around or whatever. My hope and my prayer as we conclude this morning is that you would be trusting in Jesus to know the way and to follow him as he leads you. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word to us. Lord, we pray, God, that as we conclude this morning, that we would not be trusting in our own credentials, our own academic learning, our own superior knowledge. None of those things matter to you. You are the only sovereign God. You are the only invisible immortal worthy of praise and glory. God, you are our God, and your son is beautiful. I pray that if there are any here today who have not trusted in you, who are still thinking that they get to control their life, who, who are thinking that they still get to call the shots, who are thinking that they can still lean on their own understanding of the best path to go in terms of how to present themselves or portray themselves to the world rather than just being honest and trusting in you, I pray, God, you'd convict them. And I pray, Lord, that you'd bring them to salvation. Father, for us as a church, 
I pray you'd remind us once again what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to hear and always to heed your voice, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.